0: Welcome, you're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theatre. I'm Gabrielle. And I'm Nick. Um, And the story from here on out is difficult to tell. Um, Essentially, Mr. Lee's death is the end of our story. Our grief and guilt over it consumed us then, and it still consumes us now. So we're going to dive right in. (laughs) We knew from all the articles written about it that The fire was designated an arson, but neither the press nor we were privy to any of the information as to how exactly that was determined, or any other details for that matter.
1: Yeah, I mean, who committed the arson and why? Right. Uh, Parallel with the journalistic investigation was the criminal investigation. Each was uncovering different and contradictory facts. Then there was our own investigation. But which of these investigations was going to get to the truth about what really happened?
0: We'll never know, right? Is the answer, yeah?
1: We'll read excerpts from the journal over the next over the two weeks that this took place, and um, these entries will also show in part Gabrielle's journey through this stressful time. Yeah,
0: um, and amazingly, thankfully, (laughs) right? I. I took fairly detailed notes at the time, um, despite all the turmoil. so it's really the most concise and direct way of telling you what happened because a lot of it neither one of us remember no, in don't. real time, not, right not really, no. So uh, the last journal entry before the fire uh, was just two days before, and it was almost prophetic. on wednesday nineteen ninety-two, I wrote, Nothing going on. The generator is running better than ever. Nick built the box around it and put it next to Coco's Hut and the garden to mute the noise a bit. So that's that. A couple of changes here and there, and then everything will go back to status quo, probably. And then what, Little Thieves Theater? What are you still doing there? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, except... I actually wrote that. <laughs> right. Yeah, the day before the fire, right? Uh, Two days before.
0: Yes, just like about four days before I wrote, I wish something grand would happen, and, you know, oh, my God.
1: Uh, Except we weren't there. Um, The filmmakers, uh, theater producers (laughs) were not there. They were home in their apartment. Yeah.
0: So Tuesday, uh, June 2nd, so what would that be, three, four days uh, later after the fire, I wrote... The fire was started around 5 a.m. on a morning when Nick was sleeping comfortably in his soft bed at home, which is driving him crazy. When he got to the hill that morning, he walked into a crime scene investigation with Mr. Lee uncovered, frozen mannequin-like, unrecognizable, and most eerily upright in a kind of kneeling tai chi position that looked like he faced the smoke, the fire, death, head on with acceptance and courage, like a warrior. We don't know anything yet, except that the fire was probably drug-related, that someone started it deliberately, and that it was not meant to kill Mr. Lee. When I asked Ace later if anybody tried to save him, he said that no one figured he was still in the hut, because he usually left so early with his bags, and that the hut went up in flames in seconds. So no. No one tried to save them.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I usually got up at dawn, and he was out there already, and the two of us would talk a little bit, but, um, well.
0: And once a hut like his, his caught fire, yeah. Well, we don't know, yeah. Uh,
1: the next day, it was front page news in the New York Daily News. Uh, it read, Shani Inferno, arsenic's target, poorest of the poor, one killed. Yeah, that was the ahead. front page headline. And it said, uh, residents of the modern-day Hooverville on the Manhattan side of the bridge said the blaze was set by two pistol-carrying drug dealers from a nearby public housing complex who bore a grudge against a resident who survived. So that's the early story. Yeah. And it said that when... Firefighters arrived around 5.15 a.m. Many residents were barricaded in for the night, and firefighters had to smash open locks before residents could escape.
0: Remember we had told you last episode how Dip was locked into his hut to sell drugs out of a little window? Apparently others were as well. We didn't know that.
1: Right. Uh, Fire department spokesman Tom Kelly said they had pounded frantically on the doors calling the blazing inferno kelly said that it was miraculous that only one person died no other injury ingi- injuries were reported among the 35 people living in some 15 shacks yeah the dead man
0: made up you know that's a uh, process but made it i should right. say
1: the dead man was identified as Yakbil lee an elderly elderly unemployed restaurant worker uh that was uh, a Dan Hayes wrote that. Yes. What also was never answered was to what degree corrupt cops were culpable. We said in the last episode how some cops were indisputedly on the take and how everyone knew what was going on, who did what, but how no one ever was ever arrested. Dan Hayes was determined to get to the bottom of that. And here's what he wrote in another article.
0: Right. Uh, the headline of that article is Shanty Dwellers Call Cops Abusive. So just read the whole thing.
1: Uh, let's see. Residents of a Manhattan Bridge shantytown where an arson fire killed a man last week are afraid to cooperate with detectives because of the violent acts by local pre- precinct cops, they said yesterday. Occupants of the area told the Daily News they had been threatened and one home had been smashed. Police denied the complaints. They come up here and say, open the door I'll shoot it open, said one terrified occupant of the Bridge Plaza area known as the Hill. The neighborhood has been the focus of an investigation since Friday when a hut dweller known familiarly as Mr. Lee died in a blaze there. More to the story. Detectives have given some information about two possible suspects, but according to those who lived there, Fears of police have kept them from telling the full story. Shantytown dwellers, who agreed to talk on condition of anonymity, said that several weeks ago the 5th Precinct cops who parked their private vehicles on the bridge plaza blamed a Hill resident for vandalizing their cars. In retribution, they said a group of off-duty police arrived with five or six sledgehammers and smashed one of the 15 shacks on the hill.
0: Which we were there for you. We told you that last episode. Right.
1: Deborah Chang, a community relations specialist with the mayor's office on homelessness, confirmed that two weeks ago, residents had complained to her about the incident. But police officers may have been off duty, and they couldn't get any badge numbers. That's what she said. Well, true. Chang said she had spoken to the precinct char- sergeant And he had no knowledge of the incident, but he promised to speak with his officers. (laughs) Uh, Scary to talk about. One resident said he believed command-level officers knew what is going on and have denied it. It's very dangerous and scary to talk about, he said. One also accused cops of making off with shack dwellers' belongings. They come up here and take what they want. The dead man was inside one of the three shacks that went up in pre-dawn blaze that fire marshals said was set by igniting trash.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, so of course uh, the captain, precinct captain, denied all this, so it was all lies, right? In many ways it didn't matter to us at all. The answers were going to bring Mr. Lee back. We were now concentrating on doing right by him, like getting his body released and, and giving him a proper burial.
1: Well, uh, I, I think that uh, that's where our paths diverged during this time I mean yeah y- uh, you were seen to the funeral and the burial but I was like single-mindedly trying to pursue get the answer to who killed Mr. Lee and uh, I became sort of desperate in this search uh, looking for this answer um, and looking back um, I became pretty dangerous to myself and to others in that obsession.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. So back to the journal, right? And now the circus begins. Reverend Walker and L. Sharpton wannabe, Dan Hayes, that daily news reporter, the fire department, the city, the cops, the DA, what's going to happen? Who's going to do what? Shaft said that Spencer had tape recordings of Myra's story in case she doesn't want to repeat it. Myra is a prostitute that hangs out sometimes. She's very sweet and affectionate and an uncomplicated girl. Hayes came by with a Cantonese translator, and together we went through Mr. Lee's things. Uh, you know, The odds and ends that he carried in his bags were finally revealed. Five handmade passports, lots of photos, some maybe having to do with him, but most probably all picked out of other people's garbage, found bank passbooks, his possessions. Let it fall as it may, although it's scary to talk too much publicly, this is not a time to try and control things. Nothing matters anymore now. Tuesday, June 2nd, 92, funeral homes, trying to get info from Mary Brosnahan and the Coalition for the Homeless. They gave us the name of a cemetery in Elizabeth, which is where he did, in fact, eventually get buried. Uh, Nick and Margaret on the hill with the ADA, who doesn't want to hear any insinuations that cops might have something to do with this mysterious fire, meant for who knows who, certainly not Mr. Lee, He said that Dan Hayes' articles was all lies. He doesn't want to entertain the notion that it's very weird that someone would pay $400 to start a fire, that it happened right after the complaints about police harassment were flooding the mayor's office, and that afterwards no cops showed up on the Hill anymore. And suddenly a fire... Nick, you were born in 1952. I was born in 1946. That's what that guy told you, Greenbaum. That's the difference, he said. Whatever the hell that means. Well, yeah, I
1: know. This district you know? attorney, uh, uh, Greenbaum, was always playing mindfuck games with me and other, using all kinds of forms of kind of intimidation. You know, he thought he was so wickedly smart. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he variously treated me either as a, a willing informant on <laughs> what was going on on the Hill, or as one of the co-conspirators of the drug trade or something. Uh, he flipped back and forth on that. And I was under investigation. I mean, my job, he called Pacific Studios. He
0: called your your boss.
1: Yeah, and he called a couple friends who told me that they had gotten calls from him. So... He, al- he always said with a big intimidating smile, and it was sort of scary, he said, you know, I might be putting you in front of a grand jury, meaning that wh- whatever it means to go in front of a grand jury, yeah. right? And and at the other end of the spectrum, there was Spencer, who kept asking me what Greenbaum was asking me, or was he inquiring me about. And he told me about how a friend of his, uh, where a DA or some other law enforcement off. Somehow the cops or the machine had planted per- child pornography on his computer so they could have him cooperate with him, you know. So I'm, I'm being, <laughs> I'm not sure what either Greenbaum or uh, the DA <laughs> or the, you know, the drug, drug lord, lord Spencer. wanted from me. Yeah. Except maybe some indication that I was quote unquote working for either one of them. And uh, so the stress was exactly that, me standing kind of between a rock and a hard place. I wasn't working for, you know, I wasn't giving either one of them any information about what was going on. And uh, I was being intimidated by both of them. Yeah,
0: so back to the journal. Um, Myra and Tony Panama gave the ADA a statement. Margaret is getting the picture she took of the hill and Mr. Lee's hut back from her London home promised to give them to Dan Hayes before she gave them to the ADA, to Greenbaum, who wants them for clues on what the Hill looked like at the time of the arson. Nick has to drop off Mr. Lee's belongings to the ADA tomorrow, at which point he'll try to talk to him once more. Bobby's been walking around simpering. I didn't do it. Don't look at me. Fuck them. I got nothing to do with it and the like. So Nick went crazy on him, saying, we're all guilty and holding a gun-shaped fingers to his head, saying he'd kill whoever did it. Then a little while later, a stupid-ass driver stopped at the stoplight next to the hill and says, got anything for rent? Nick started going after him when Mo held him back. Instead, you went into the teepee crying. Later, when everyone was gone, the Chinese man in the back, we told you this at the beginning, the geomancer, as Nick called him, came out, stood on top of his hut, and cried to the heavens the first words anyone had ever heard him speak in all these years. He was my friend. We were soldiers together. He was my brother. Wednesday, June 3rd, 1992, according to Spencer and Myra, the tape they concocted, talking about clubs and prostitutes and turf disputes and jealousies and revenge, Dee Dee and Cinnamon who they pointed out to Nick, paid $400 for a fire meant to hurt Myra and that they were going to give themselves up. That was the scuttlebutt for a while, right? Later that day, Nick followed them to the precinct, but they didn't go. So Nick went inside to find out what he could shake loose. First, he asked the cops why they weren't arresting Bobby. A, Everyone knew he was the one breaking into the parked cars on the bridge, which they were raising such a big stink about. B, Bobby had outstanding warrants. And C, the Chinese man had filed a report with them upon his trunk being broken into. About a week or so earlier, there was a Chinese man who approached Nick wondering if he could help him that his trunk had been broken into and that all he really wanted was his passports back. Um, Then... One cop referred Nick to the next, to the next, until someone told him that they had no record of a report being filed on that day. But Nick persisted and started making a scene along the lines of, what the hell is going on here? The cop took Nick into a room and began explaining to him how cops only have each other, and that they look out for each other, and that... Uh, things aren't as black and white as they seem, and that surely Nick can understand that. They also told him the Dee and Cinnamon story was concocted, that they had someone in custody, and they were still looking for, quote-unquote, white boy. Sensing that he couldn't get any further, Nick left to return to the Hill and think about what all of this meant. The cops were obviously protecting Bobby, but were they putting him up to all of this? You know, looking for a reason to take Spencer and the Hill down? Were they involved with Spencer in some other way? And the final taboo, did they have anything yeah. you know, to do with a fire, right? When Nick returned to the Hill, he was confronted by a white boy, small WB, <laughs> who pulled a knife on him and said, I'd do time for you. Nick had never seen him before. Greenbaum, the ADA, treated me like an aggrieved relative while trying to intimidate Nick, calling him a liar. Uh, He Says he's had, quote, several people from the Hill in his office and wants us to come down with Mr. Lee's belongings. Spencer is terribly anxious to prove to us that it wasn't drug related and that he had nothing to do with it. Mike, who lives across the street, said he found out that there is an internal affairs investigation going on, but that nothing will be pursued unless someone identifies the cops in the article that Dan Hayes wrote, S- said they've been calling him at work, Mike. Mm. Nick confronted Tony Panama and Bobby separately about the cop, but what the cop had told him about Dean's and Cinnamon's story being concocted. Tony said Bobby was supposed to testify against Spencer and that rumors have been flying that Bobby was a snitch. As for Bobby, he acted surprised, like it was all news to him. Nick told Bobby that people have no honor anymore, that he'd meet anybody one-on-one, but that no, the cowards would rather do time. No doing time, huh, Nick, says Bobby. And then I wrote, Nick, you promised to grow old with me. I ju- then I wrote, I just gave Hayes Nunez. That was the abusive cop that we mentioned in the last episode. I don't know if that was smart. Oh, well, everybody knew it anyway. Why didn't Deborah Chanks, why did she sidestep it once she knew it? It's looking more and more like the cops are too entangled in this mess and that no one knows how to extract them. Nick brought Greenbaum Mr. Lee's belongings. He didn't even talk to him, just took information, full name, job, name of boss. That's probably after that that they called your boss and asked him to bring in the New Yorker article tomorrow. A few minutes ago, I put Reverend Walker in his place. He's getting very pushy, and I told him so. I reminded him that a year ago, he agreed to bring sleeping bags and blankets, but then when we told him he couldn't bring the press along when he did that, he didn't bother to bring the sleeping bags or the blankets either. I reminded him that he wasn't ever around before or since that incident, and that things are not revolving around him and his schedule now either, just because he smells a media opportunity for himself. Day later, Thursday, June 4th, 92. First grade kids from the school across the street, PS124, made cards honoring Mr. Lee, and the teacher brought them to the hill by the cross erected on the rubble. Some of the cards were very funny, all of them moving, bringing tears to many people's eyes. Um, People keep placing various items on the rubble, vases, flowers, Chinese Bibles. Nick is going to the school today to give the kids some of our postcards of the teepee, right, that we had made and to thank them. Dan Hayes came by again. He wants to pursue the case. Nick told him very little for now because Hayes is going to the cops and the ADA himself, which is much better anyway. I set up a meeting for 4.30 today at Eng Funeral Home on Mulberry Street to arrange the details. They came forward with an offer to do the funeral at a cheaper price than usual because Mr. Lee was Chinese. They will get the victim's compensation money that the city gives out to crime victims. We decided on a, pri- on a private ceremony on the hill, which we will hold and will probably, hopefully, include burning the teepee. And everyone else can do what they want. Reverend Walker, the Senior Citizen Center, uh, the press, etc. Sanitation brought a dumpster today. Nick is letting Shaft or whoever organize the cleanup and staying out of the lead as much as possible. We may go to the Village Voice. There's just too much protecting of the cops going on. Mm-hmm. Friday, next day, June 5th, 92, Nick went to the first graders to thank them and give them some TP postcards inexplicably. The guy who was in jail with Nick was also there. Nick just looked at him and at the young children and cried. Margaret and Nick went to ADA Greenbaum's office and told him more about Mr. Lee, us, and the Hill. Nick continues to press the issue of who quote unquote really started this fire and told Greenbaum what the cops had told him at the station the other day about looking out for each other and that things are not black and white. Greenbaum countered by simply stating that he never heard of a Bobby and changed the subject, letting Nick know that he would not tolerate this line of conversation. Instead, he put on an officer friendly act trying to make Nick feel appreciated and happy because he said he and I, you know, Nick and I were no longer under investigation. Also, he seemed genuinely moved by the kids' cards. It all served to make us angry and ultimately scared. What's going on? Today, I faxed everyone, the ADA, Greenbaum, Deborah Chang, Harriet Cohen, Dan Hayes, the Reverend Walker and Doherty, my homage to Mr. Lee. So yesterday, I kept writing, the commander came up and talked to Mo alone. While Nick and James, who hangs out across the street, were cleaning up garbage. Afterwards, Mo wouldn't say what the commander wanted, but he stopped cleaning, even though he was being paid by Shaft. Then suddenly, someone, a stranger, picked a fight with James. The same kind of thing that happened to Nick yesterday. Quote, unquote, white boy, caps, Graffiti is all over the Lower East Side. Big Crazy Tony did another psycho routine on Nick, first picking a fight with him, then giving Nick his last dollar, which he owed him, then asking to borrow $5, then giving Nick a crucifix and leaving. That boy needs to learn how to express his emotions. (laughs) Margaret, who in our world these days of few friends and no peers has been a lifesaver. She, Margaret Morton, this is. She's helping us a great deal with all of the arrangements. Since either Nick or I have to be at Pacific Studios all day, she adds one more mobile person while Nick is mostly on the hill and I'm fielding phone calls, faxing, and composing letters from Pacific Studios. She also checked into Chinese mythology and learned that oranges are a symbol for gold. Mr. Lee used to tie oranges all over his hut, and yesterday, Nick put an orange in a vase with flowers on the rubble. Funeral arrangements are now set for Wednesday, with a wake for the Chinese community on Tuesday evening. Then comes the service on the hill, and then supposedly, a march across the Manhattan Bridge, which Reverend Walker arranged, followed by a service at Reverend Daughtry's House of the Lord Pentecostal Church. Today, the hill is crazy, full of lowlifes and mafia types. Nobody knows who's who. Nick doesn't even want to go back there before the service, and I want to go down on record as having said that someone will burn down that teepee before we ever even get the chance. Wednesday, June 10th, 92. So much has transpired in the last five days that I'm not even sure I can put all the pieces together. We gave up on going to the press. Trying to nail cops would be futile anyway. Dan Hayes couldn't do it, and God knows he tried. He wrote five articles and tried like hell to find a chink in the blue wall of silence. Nothing. After that, his editor pulled the plug. As it is, there's a huge police corruption scandal unfolding in New York starting starring mostly Michael Dowd, so everyone is extra tight-lipped. The fifth precinct, this one that we're in, is also under investigation, especially the community policing unit, because for one thing, they're robbing the merchants, Mm -hmm. the cops, and I believe that that's only the beginning, I wrote. An investigation into Mr. Lee's murder would only scare up half-truths anyway. If there's one thing the couple years on the hill have driven home to us is that those cops were right there is no black and white only gray always only gray everything else is naive or a lie we're working now on healing and honoring mr lee funeral arrangements nick is roaming the streets and parks in search of magicians and knowledge communing with street performance and old men who mysteriously knew things they couldn't possibly have known. He didn't want anything to do with this world, and thus didn't want to identify the body, saying someone on the hill should, or else the ADA should figure it out himself. There was no body, as far as Nick was concerned. And a couple of days ago, when we walked across the Brooklyn Bridge together late at night, talking quietly in the city's eerie, calm, hand-in-hand, it all made perfect sense for a while. (laughs) But ultimately, it became a big problem. Yesterday morning, Margaret and I met on the hill and barely managed to get Ace out of bed and into a cab and to the medical examiner's office in the 50s, by 8.30 a.m., he was going to do the identifying. Honestly, I'm not sure why. I I think you had wanted Ace to identify. I don't know. You wanted Ace there. I'm not sure why why I couldn't do it. We thought this was the final and most difficult step, only to find out that they weren't ever going to release the body at all. With all the people involved, it was no longer clear who told us that a visual ID was all that was needed to release the body, but when we got there, the fact was, the body was too badly burned for a visual ID. Uh, The other three choices were dental records, an x-ray, or immigration records. Right. It seemed impossible, and we told them that at the medical examiner's office. People like Mr. Lee don't go to dentists, or have x-rays taken, or have immigration records. He was just the person that lived and died. He hasn't been inside the system, the bureaucracy, in years. But without IDs, you've never existed in our world. We called Dan Hayes and the ADA and Reverend Walker and any other forces we could think to mobilize. No one had any answers offhand. But there's supposed to be a funeral tomorrow, which greatly upset Reverend Walker. God forbid his self-serving mice and men plans should go awry. Then two amazing events happened. First, gentle Margaret summoned up all her strength and like a lioness roared out arguments to the officials that all we want is to bury a man, a friend with dignity, that they were preventing this by sticking to rules by which this body can't ever be released and that they should be ashamed of themselves the woman went away for a long time, and Ace, Margaret, and I sat in silence, exhausted and confused, wondering what to do. Suddenly, I remembered the magical rock from Crazy Horse Mountain in my bag. I handed it to Ace and told him that Nick had wanted him to hold it for him and as thanks for doing this, right? For identifying Miss Lee's body. At that very moment, The woman official came back, all smiles, telling us that they would release the body today. We all hugged, including the woman. And Ace swore in awe, it it was the rock. The rock worked. The rock is magic. And it really did feel like that to all of us. This was hours later, right? And I had forgotten about the rock. Uh, Okay, so I wrote, that was yesterday morning. Last evening was the wake for the Chinese community, although the body didn't get to the funeral home until it was almost supposed to be over, but it didn't matter. I was the only one there anyway. And Margaret came later, God bless her, in between the turmoil yesterday afternoon, she had had minor gynecological surgery in the course of the day. Meanwhile, Nick was grieving, walking the streets with the angels elsewhere. It was very beautiful in the chapel though, and I was glad I got a moment of peace alone with Mr. Lee, some music and my thoughts. I had brought a basket of six oranges, the number six standing for the calm after the war, and a little ceramic tortuga. In the chapel, everything was in threes, cups, pairs of chopsticks, incense, all set up for a would-be feast, which is how the Chinese honor their dead. I was told by the funeral director that the Chinese believe in the number one and in three, but never in two. I sat calmly for some time, upright, and on the edge of my chair, until at one point, I felt a cat or something slinking behind me. I arched my back, but when I turned around, nothing was there, which really unnerved me. I then walked the half mile or so back to the teepee, enjoying the end of a beautiful placid early summer evening, ready to prepare for tomorrow's burning of the teepee. Reverend Walker, a very annoyingly unsubtle egomaniac, had taken charge of this moment of public glory, and talked us into getting official permission for the fire—you know, setting the teepee on fire—which had to come from the Department of Environmental Protection, as though I really cared. But he made the phone calls and gave me the names and addresses and fax numbers, so I wrote the letter that he wanted and faxed them out. I sat inside the teepee within the dark and the calm I had found, but I didn't know what to do. I missed Nick so much. We were so far apart by then. He had immersed himself in the grief and I felt abandoned, left alone to take care of business. So I lit three candles next to my portrait of Mr. Lee, with some of his intricately knotted ribbons looped over it and just sat there for a while. Then I went to the playground with the Pentagon jungle gym, Tortuga Park, as we had called it. Nick had taken Tortuga there, and I was determined to take charge now and set him free in the Prospect Park lake. Enough is enough. But Tortuga wasn't there anymore, or at least I couldn't find him. I felt such pain and shame for how much we had put that poor creature through. I hope that somehow Nick had him and that maybe he had set him free himself after I put my foot down yesterday. I looked around for the fake passports and wedding photos that Mr. Lee had carried with him. Margaret, Nick, and I had brought them there after the ADA figured out they wouldn't help him. You know, the fake passports and photos wouldn't help the ADA, so he gave Greenbaum gave them back to us. I saw only one of the wedding photos still left. It was on the cement table, as though deliberately placed and waiting for me to find. I quickly jumped into a cab to go back home to Brooklyn to wait for Nick there. He was already home when I arrived, and he was just as happy as I was. I told him what had happened to me that day, To my joy, he told me that he had set Tortuga del Sol, Tortuga del Luna, free in Prospect Park Lake. Thank God, may you please forgive me. It was late, but we went back to the park to find the spot, all the while carrying a little urn. Nick had been given by that psychopath bully, Tony. Crazy guy. We got out of the subway at the corner of the park and were the only white people uh, late that night among 10 or so black eyes, We walked through them as they walked all around us, circling us menacingly. One of them walked ahead of us making strange noises. All of them were telling us in no uncertain terms that we were far astray and not welcome. Nick began making whistling sounds like bird calls or secret signs. Hand in hand, we walked through the crowd And I wasn't afraid, not of this situation for some reason. Then we walked and walked and walked through the night, searching, listening, breathing in the warm pine-scented air. We slept in the grass a while, then walked some more, but Nick, Nick couldn't find the spot again in the dark where he had let Tortuga loose, so it would have to wait for another day, and we hid the urn. We were both very happy Tortuga was free. A few hours later, we got up to go to the funeral home. We met met Margaret, the reverence, and the press there. Then Nick went off on his own, and Margaret and I and our entourage headed to the hill. For quite a while, we had some problems controlling ignorant bloodhound reporters and photographers. One of them even called to talk to me at the funeral home. I had made it clear to the reverence in advance that they could do what they wanted, but that the ceremony on the hill would be ours and private, that it would not take place until it was private, and that I didn't care how long it took. The press kept trying to enter, climbing the fences to get a view, and the hill residents wouldn't even come out of their huts. I yelled at the reverence and the press that nothing was going to happen and no one was coming out of their huts because of this circus. So they finally realized that nothing was, you know, going anywhere and that I was serious and made a concerted effort to control the crowd. We went on to have a beautiful ceremony standing in a circle with my fellow neighbors in the ashes of Mr. Lee's hut. I had placed the crazy horse rock and three oranges in the center I had Margaret read my homage because my hands were shaking so much. Afterwards, I spoke to everyone, my mixed-up thoughts about sovereignty, dignity, about family, and knowing what's important, and doing the right things in life, about Crazy Horse, the man, and his courage, and about Mr. Lee and what he gave us. Many cried, and I hugged Tony Panama because just a few days earlier, his brother, had lost the fight for life in a Pennsylvania hospital after having been shot. Tony was hurting bad for not having been there. I told him his brother knew he loved him anyway. Then the reverence convinced us to read the homage to the press outside the perimeter to throw them a bone for their human interested bit, which we did. Uh, we decided. Not to burn the teepee, and I had told Dan Hayes that. We weren't trying to betray him or anything because he had mentioned it in one of his five articles. Um, that it was just too pompous and self referential a gesture and not right. He understood. In the article later, he said that the teepee was part of the crime scene and couldn't be burned. Running behind schedule, all the visitors had left already when Margaret, Louie and I were trying to figure out how to get to the church without knowing exactly where it was. We were vaguely incredulous that no one bothered to figure out if and how the Hills residents would get there. They just left. No quote unquote walk across the bridge that he has promised, stopping all traffic. Not even a ride. Just a prayer that none of the shabby lost lambs from the hill would find their way to the pristine gathering place, right? Well, no such luck. After Louis proudly showed us his litter of eight beautiful newborn kittens, Margaret, he and I, hopped in a cab and rode in the general direction of the Pentecostal church and eventually found it with a hearse waiting out front. We went inside, and after some very passionate and inspired sermons, others were asked to say a few words. <laughs> and then something beautiful happened. Dirty, red-faced Louie, the proverbial drunk in a midnight choir, <laughs> went to the podium and talked all about his friend Mr. Lee, how he never hurt anybody, how everybody liked him, how he was a good man. In the middle of all this, Nick, who I hadn't seen in all day, showed up and s- and uh, sat next to us. When Louis sat back down, another reverend started preaching an impassioned sermon, asking rhetorical rhetorical questions to which the congregation responded enthusiastically. Mm-hmm. Amen. And he got more and more passionate, and Louis was totally wrapped. He and Louis then uh, started getting louder and louder, and angrier and angrier until Nick finally got him. To leave with him, uh, and he put Louis in a cab back to the hill, and uh, he took my house keys. Then, agreeing to meet me at quote Tortuga Park after the funeral, Margaret and I went to the funeral in, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Uh, I got beat by Cara, who agreed to you know be at Pacific Studios. So we had to stop briefly while I made a payphone call at the Holland after the Holland Tunnel. Um, And a kind, soft-spoken old black man from Reverend Walker's congregation, his name was Mr. Jenkins, was driving as Margaret and I sat in the back seat. Mr. Jenkins felt strongly about the virtues of Reverend Walker. And he himself was a simple, good man. I wasn't about to argue with him. Mostly, I was grateful and frankly, utterly amazed at the 10 or so strangers who took the time to attend the funeral in New Jersey of a man who we knew almost nothing about and who held no meaning whatsoever to them. At the funeral, I cried inconsolably, unable to stop shaking. It was like two years of tension drained out of me all at once, and the horror of my own culpability reared its head. The reverends did a laying on of the hands thing on me, which I didn't like and found very creepy, but I I didn't care. I, I was deep inside myself at that point. I was so unspeakably sad for humanity, strutting and fretting, living and dying, alive one day, dead the next. And I was sad for Mr. Lee. But then I said, and somewhere along the line, he just cracked building his own world, his own reality. He was somebody's baby boy whom virtual strangers were saving from potter's field. It may be the cruelest of all cities. I wanted him to be Jesus. I was hoping by serving him now, though too late, he could save me from ambition, from venality, from ridiculousness. Mr. Jenkins drove us back to New York. When he dropped us off, he invited us back to surprise Reverend Walker at his church after Margaret got back from her trip to London. We agreed and were grateful to him and said goodbye. We took care of some business, like going to the crime victims board and getting the money released to the funeral home. And then Margaret and I parted ways as well. And then I went to Tortuga Park uh, and am now waiting for Nick. Stumbling around, I found the last of Mr. Lee's handwritten passports. This one bearing the name Lee Calm, True. And I can't help but take it at a sign that he is in heaven and completed somehow. I let a sense of pride calm my mind enough to take in the smiling, life-affirming sun. The craziness was nearly over. Or so I thought. <laughs> Thursday, six twenty-five, ninety-two. there was, in fact, quite a bit more craziness before we were ready to close this chapter on the hill. As it happened, we both met a different Tortuga Park. Nick went to Prospect Park, where he had hidden the urn and released Tortuga, and, of course, I went to the Pentagon Jungle Gym Park at, near the hill. I waited for two hours, getting more and more frightened about Nick and his state of mind. He was so lost since Mr. Lee's death, He was getting increasingly paranoid and the arson investigation progressed. Suddenly he saw conspiracies everywhere, at the hill, at his job, on the street. Everything was a sign. He walked through the streets for blocks on end with a quarter attached to his forehead, a quarter which didn't fall, a sign. He crossed busy busy roads without looking, forcing cars to stop for him because he thought he saw Tito after all this time. He said he talked to someone that was Tito, a sign. One of the production companies renting from Pacific Studios had changed their names from one such to none such, a sign. I headed to the hill. No one had seen Nick. Then I went to Margaret's apartment. I called home, and Nick was there. Oh, thank God. That's when he told me he'd gone to Prospect Park to wait for me there. No big deal. Everything was almost over. I'll be home in half an hour. Wait for me. Because you have my house keys. I gave them to you at the church when you left with Louis. When I got home, Nick wasn't there. I panicked. I pounded on the door, sure that Nick was inside, somehow unable to answer. He wouldn't leave knowing that I was on my way home, I thought. I walked everywhere in the neighborhood. I went back home and pounded again. Finally, I called to the upstairs neighbors uh, and had them call the police. They came, three of them, New York's finest, in action again. They waltzed in, joking, smoking thugs. They mocked me for being so worried. One climbed through the front window after I told him that somehow I need to get inside and would break the door down myself if necessarily. He slightly cut his finger in the process of climbing in and tisk tisked me. See what you made me do? Once inside, I was scared to look around, afraid of what I might find. But I found nothing and just sat silently on the couch waiting for the cops to stop mocking me, accusing me of being a drug addict and to leave which eventually they did. Nick, where the hell are you? (laughs) Meanwhile, I was already very late, but I found some, it was already very late, but I found some spare keys and took off for Prospect Park. (laughs) After searching all the places we had gone yesterday, I took the subway back to the hill after that, where, exhausted and crying, I ran into Ace who hugged me and told me he had seen Nick, that Nick was in another world and that I had to help him. I know, Ace, but I don't know where he is. I went back home and slept by the front window closest to the front door for a while, wanting to be sure I heard him coming. But he he didn't come. A few hours later when I woke up, I went back to the hill. Nick was in the teepee, crying, afraid lost. All right. I mean, next
1: episode, I'll, I'll tell my experience during this time and, or try to tell it anyway.
0: Uh, All right. Okay. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time.
1: Thanks.